Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. The Product Startup, Episode 36. In today's episode, we learn from Gavin Chrisman, the co-founder of Green and Blue. Green and Blue creates a beautiful range of award-winning products for wildlife, and we take a closer look at working with ceramics. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, where we talk about turning ideas into successful products step-by-step. I'm Philip Blitza, and thanks for listening today. In the last episode, we talked with Paul Potratz about promoting our business after we launch and creating a 90-day advertising strategy on a minimal budget. So make sure to check out episode 35 if you want to hear more about that and validating your product ideas for free. A big thank you to everyone that sends in feedback on the show. Feel free to shoot me an email at philip at theproductstartup.com or go to theproductstartup.com and click contact me. Also make sure that you hit the subscribe button in iTunes or your favorite podcasting app to be notified of new releases within hours of the episode going live. If you want a chance to plug your business and pitch the product startup audience, Listen for more details at the end of this episode. So let's get started. Hi, Gavin. Thanks again for coming on the show. It's a pleasure, Philip. It's really nice to talk to you. So you've got a really interesting background. Can you talk a little bit about your past with Dyson and maybe in some ways how it's helped you along your journey with Green and Blue and in some ways what it didn't prepare you for? Sure, absolutely. I think Dyson was a. It was my first job. I was straight out of university and had the opportunity to to go along and, and work for for James Dyson, which was a fantastic opportunity. This was sort of nearly twenty years ago now. So Dyson was a, a relatively small company. It's, it grew into a, a huge entity, obviously, in, in more recent years. And I think what Dyson offered me the opportunity to do was it was a real kind of sink or swim environment. So. You got in, got involved, and and you know it was great. It was a wonderful opportunity to see how a, a large design company works in all of its facets, from its product development to its the way it markets and sells and advertises itself. So, Dyson was was just wonderful experience for for anyone that was considering setting up a, a business. It was it was looking back on it, it was a really fantastic time for me. So how has it helped you with Green and Blue and maybe some of the other projects that you had going on? Did it influence the way that you approach problems at all? Absolutely. I think the the, the mantra was at Dyson was to kind of look at a product and understand how you could make that product better. Um, fundamentally, it was through materials and good design and consideration and and not including anything that didn't need to be there. So that that sort of clean, clear thought process fundamentally instigate how I work. It, it, I could pr- pretty much say that's entirely responsible for the, the eight or nine years I spent working at Dyson, understanding a problem, seeing how you might solve that problem, then going out, creating the product and, and, and launching it from there. It, it's a really good design principle that I hold absolutely dear to everything that we do. And I really like what you said there when you said editing to just get the essential functions, the purpose of a product, because I think that's probably one of the hardest parts of design is trimming the design down to its essential functions and stripping it from the nice to haves from the must haves. 
do you have anything, any insight there to, to share with everybody on how to go to that process? Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I think once you've kind of looked at a product and recognized, well, we could make this product better simply by doing this and this, or, or what if we did that rather than this? Would that make the product more useful for the customer or, or would it make the product last longer? So I think those decisions are, are, are sort of based around what particular design problem you're facing. But that that kind of mantra of, of keeping things to as simple as possible. Don't create extra work. Don't create products that are going to have inbuilt problems in later life. Really kind of strip it down and ensure that it functions just so, just right. That That is, is, is harder than it might seem. I think that kind of level of detail and ensuring that everything is perfect it might look simple when the product reaches the, the shop floor, but I think it's incredibly difficult to do. And I feel certainly Dyson, one of the sort of world's leading companies, at doing that. I really feel passionate about what they do. And having seen the company evolve as I've moved on and, and, and launched Green and Blue and obviously kept a, a close eye on what Dyson are doing with their products, I, I think it, it's absolutely there. It's the core to everything that they do. Yeah, in a way, if you look at some of the products that you're selling online, they have that elegant simplicity to them that it's just the, the bare essentials, but in a beautiful way. I think so. I think when we started out on our journey, the, the first product that we developed was a, a product called Bird Ball. So now, Bird Ball is a very simple structural item designed as a nesting space for garden birds. So we started literally with the the, the shape that a bird makes for its own nest. And, and that shape is, is hemispherical. It's half of a sphere. Yet we put them in these rectangular boxes and we bought them to the wall. And we kind of wondered, well, you know, if a bird were creating a birdhouse, what would be the best shape for that? And we thought spherical was was an obvious choice. What that led us to was, well, actually, we could suspend this and make it from a product that doesn't rot or a material that doesn't rot, I should say. So suddenly you've kind of got the aesthetic, you've created a material that you know is going to be outlast any other kind of wooden bird box out there. And then you can think about security and safety. This bird is spending a huge amount of energy raising this brood. The last thing you want is a is a inquisitive cat or a squirrel or something like that kind of attacking the nest. So by creating something that was impervious and, and in fact hung up was very unusual at the time. But those the reasons for sort of doing that were very very clear it was about creating a product that was better for the birds it just so happens that a beautiful white ceramic sphere hanging from your tree also looks incredibly beautiful which was entirely a byproduct of our design process yeah that's very interesting because i think one of the first tips that people will give is say hey you need to step into the mindset of your customer and try to walk in their shoes and really feel their problem, not just uh, emulate it or not just kind of give it lip service. And so your whole description there was basically from the perspective of a bird. Absolutely. They're a customer at the end of the day. We need, we're providing homes for them. We need to ensure that, that that brood will leave in the best possible form that they can. And that's about creating a safe, secure habitat that will provide that. And, and we take it very seriously. It's it's really quite important that uh, be it a bird or a bee or or any other creature that we might be developing products for, it's, they are our client at the end of the day. And it's it's imperative that we deliver all of our promises and make sure that, that, that we're doing exactly what they need. 
Well, I think it's really commendable for you to take up that angle. There's not too many products being developed for wildlife. I think the space is just so competitive. You can basically go down to any corner store almost and buy something for birds that's been designed on a mass scale that maybe doesn't quite fit their needs. But the competition is definitely out there and the market seems to be pretty saturated. What gave you the idea that you thought, man, you know what, I think this is the space that we can compete in and not just compete in, but actually make a difference and have a sustainable business? I think that that was very simple. We kind of took a number of products that were available on the market at the time. This was sort of back in 2005, 2006, so quite a long time ago now. At the time, there were no alternatives to the, forgive the phrase, but the sort of cheap and cheerful uh, kind of bird feeders and, and bird houses that were available. Mm-hmm. We felt they didn't do the job very well. They, they principally were made from inferior products. And, and certainly in the case of some bird feeders, actually do damage to the bird. So rather than provide a, a, a friendly source of food in your garden, you're actually putting something out there that has the potential to do harm to the wildlife, which it was so sort of counterproductive in our eyes. It was like, well, let's iron out all of those problems. Let's do away with the materials that are causing the problems. Um, the, the problems that the birds sort of face in feeding from from wire feeders, which were, were uh, essentially what was all that was available um, when we started the project. Birds can very easily get entangled in in the wire mesh. You know, they're in a frenzy to feed. It's it's cold. It's winter. They need to eat their own body weight almost every day. They may have a young brood. It's important that they get their food source and they get it quickly and efficiently and expend as small amount of energy as possible. So, in looking at something that can actually do harm to it, you think, goodness me, why is this even on the market? This is it's criminal. It really is. Now, just because it's a bird, it makes it no less important that we. Think about the design consideration and, and ensure that we're ironing out all of those problems. So I think uh, certainly our feeders, when we looked at that, it was, goodness me, these are the problems. They're so easily solved. It just needs a little bit of thought. And, and again, you know, look at the materials that we've used and, and look at how we put them together and create a, an item that will do exactly as it should. Uh, absolutely imperative to what we do. Yeah, and in a way, basically what you're saying is that there was an unmet need in the market What I'm trying to do is translate some of this to people that are listening now that are saying, you know what, I want to compete in this market, but it seems too competitive for me. And basically what you did was say, you know what, all these other run-of-the-mill feeders aren't really competition because they're not meeting the need. Absolutely. Yeah, no, sure. I think that's imperative with with any element of design, be it you're designing a new coffee machine or a bird feeder or or, or a car. You've got to come at things from different angles and find your in, find your way to to create difference and and certainly in our case our, our sort of principle of, of solving problems is is critical to us so how we design so really kind of analyze every single product and think well, i wonder why it does that you know i'm a big fan of taking things apart i think i always have been so understanding how things are put together and i think that helps you appreciate all oh, right that's been done like that well that's perhaps not the best way what if it did this or or this so i think it's it doesn't matter what you design be prepared to come at it from all angles. And that way you, you're just going to find a chink in it and recognize, wow, we can create real point of difference with this. And it, it doesn't have to be groundbreaking, you know, but it, it, it's just a little niche. And suddenly, wow, that's that's a wonderful way to invent a new product that no one else has seen before. It's, it's, it's an exciting way to sort of go about business. Yeah, absolutely need to differentiate yourself. So as you were going through and creating uh, your first bird feeder, were you working full-time somewhere else or was that able to sustain yourself and your wife? 
It was an exciting time. I'd elected to leave Dyson. I'd been with the company for, for just uh, just under nine years. My, my wife and also the co-founder of Green and Blue Kate, she um, had been working for design agencies at the same same sort of time I was at Dyson. And it was a bit of a leap of faith, if I'm honest, Philip. We, we wanted to move our life to to the coast. We, we live in a beautiful part of the UK and, and the, the West Cornish coast. Uh, is a stunning part of the world, and, and we felt, gosh, if we were lucky enough to to have a wonderful business that we entirely believed in, that was fulfilling in, in terms of design, and at the end of the day, we were lucky enough to be able to love our surroundings in the way that we do. We, we felt pretty privileged, so we took a real leap of faith. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but it's certainly the way we did it. So we left two perfectly good, well-paid jobs, and took a punt on 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 green and blue, which was very exciting. My wife changed direction a little bit and she went into into lecturing design at the uh, university here which is a fantastic institution uh, and in fact she's still there so she she runs her time between green and blue and and, uh, and as a lecturer at the university so that kind of came about but yeah at the time no there was no other income this had to work the, the first thing we launched was bird ball and you know getting this to market was very stressful i'm not i'm not necessarily advocating the way that we did it but yeah it was it's courageous stuff and i perhaps look back on it now and think yeah it's pretty naive but i'm certainly glad we made the leap i really am you know as i look at some of the people that have been really successful and with as much positivity as i can put towards it i can say that there's a lot of people that have gone into business with a certain amount of ignorance because if you knew exactly what you were getting into i think it would scare a lot of people from taking that leap Absolutely. I think it really would. It's impressive for you guys to take that next step. As you were developing your product line, can you talk a little bit about how things evolved? Did you take the bird ball to market first and kind of see how that would react? Or were you working on other products in parallel while you were taking it, you know, where you were selling it and trying to see if it got any traction on the market? Uh, initially, it was an exciting thing. But we had this wonderful idea and we we, we had... Uh, manufacturing in place that was uh, UK-based ceramics, um, uh, uh, predominantly made in Staffordshire, a, a region in the sort of Midlands of the country, which, which is historically where ceramic is made. It's been exported all around the world from Stoke-on-Trent for, for hundreds of years. So that's kind of where we wanted to make it. We knew that was the best place to make it. That was where the skills were. That's where the best materials were going to be, and that's where all that knowledge was. So it was it was trips backwards and forwards to meet mold makers and and uh, and slip casting companies and, and people that could help us with glazes and, and you know this was exciting we didn't know anything about this kind of thing we had an idea and we needed to push it forward but certainly no but birdball was the, that was the idea we took that to market and, and in fact we were taking orders before we really had a finished product we, we knew we could do it but certainly the the finished packaging and the, the sort of the literature wasn't quite there but I think we needed to do that, if I'm honest, Philip. I think it gave us the the impetus to to, to make it happen. We had a lovely idea. We we were confident that it would sell. So I was already going out with with postcards, and 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 this was almost pre the the, the wonderful internet that we now enjoy in terms of business. So we were kind of searching through. Uh, kind of phone books and finding retailers and telling them about this product and just desperately trying to get our literature under their noses so they could they could look at it and think well yeah okay this is a very different product this isn't what we currently have let's let's take a chance on it and we're very grateful that a number of retailers did that and that really got us off the ground 
that's a really interesting story. And I want to definitely dive into the manufacturing part of it more. The inner geek in me definitely wants to know more about that. <laughs> but uh, before we get into that, you said that you were reaching out to some retailers to see if they would sell your initial bird ball. At that point, did you already have a unit cost for that because you've gone through maybe a first round manufacturing or you, you've had some sort of reasonably good estimates for it? Yeah, we, we'd, we'd already done that. So we, we'd got a mold maker in place, a great guy that we still work with to this day. And, and so we knew what the molding cost was going to be. We knew that we could go and talk to a slip casting company and they provided samples. It, 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 this is kind of low tech stuff, you know. It, this is this is handmade. It's 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 a beautiful process of pouring liquid clay into plaster molds. The mold takes on the form of the product as it dries back and leaves a wall thickness. So it's it's a wonderful process. You can look at any teacup or any bowl or any any piece of ceramic that slip cast, and it still has that lovely quality to it. This this handmade quality. Um. So we had samples, so we had prices, so we kind of knew the kind of margins that a retailer might be looking for and sort of felt, well, okay, this this sort of stacks up. I, I'm pretty sure that we can make this work. So, so yeah, we, we had kind of figures that we, we, we could stand by. Um, I guess what we didn't have was a great deal of knowledge of, of getting the product to the customer, dealing with returns and all the other side of the business that, that had to follow. So it, we were kind of finding our feet and, and discovering all the challenges as we went along. Um, I don't I don't regret that and I certainly recommend that. You know, it might sound a bit crazy, but I think you've got to be in it. And when, when you're in it, you can kind of, you know, you can deal with the nitty gritty as it comes, but otherwise you'll perhaps never do it. You'll just stand on the sideline and think, oh, what, what, what if this and what if that? I think immerse yourself in it and, and go for it. No, I absolutely agree. I think you know, there's only so much research that you can do before you get into the thick of it, like you said. While you were going through that process and you were contacting these retailers, what kind of agreements, and you don't have to speak specifically, obviously we don't want to break any terms and conditions, but do you think retailers were more willing to take on consignment orders or what kind of margins were you looking at? For example, in our line of work with some of the products that I deal with, it's usually a 4x multiple. So if the manufacturing cost is maybe $5, then you expect to go to retail for 20 mm -hmm. Keeping in mind, everybody takes a cut along the way. There's so many middlemen, so to speak, whether you're dealing with distributors or otherwise. And maybe in your case, because you're selling direct now on your website, obviously the margins are going to be different. But give somebody a picture of what their ballpark should be whenever they're developing their product. Yeah, absolutely. So as a kind of a, a 2.5 to 3 sort of multiple, so not quite as high as, as your area of business, but obviously, you know, we've got to kind of get the product in, get it delivered to us here, assemble it with all of those costs needed to come into play. We need to package it. We needed to provide the literature and get it back out to a retailer. So, yeah, you've really got to kind of go through the nitty gritty in terms of your costing and ensure that once you've done all of that, does it still stack up? Uh, obviously, a retailer is looking to make a good margin. They have expensive costs. They're dealing with expensive business rates on premium parts of the high street and that sort of thing. So they have you know huge costs to deal with themselves. But it's it's only a challenge when you look at any product. We We have very strict criteria in terms of taking something forward. If the margin isn't there, we just can't do it. And, and it might be as good as an idea as it is. We either have to re-engineer it and kind of think of another way to do it or quite simply shelve it, which is, is tough. Um, having greenandblue.co.uk is great. Obviously, the margin we make is better. It's a great platform for us to meet our customers directly. We have great sort of feedback from our customers. 
so certainly that portion of the business would be a lovely portion to grow, but it, it's, it's a tough part of the business to grow. It probably represents less than 15% of our business at the moment. Our focus really has been building up our trade customers, creating those really important relationships. I can't stress that enough. You have to have great relationships with your retailers. You have to listen, understand what they have to do, because they're the guys that are meeting the, the end user at the end of the day. So you really, you know, you need to feed off those guys because they have wonderful advice to give and it's important that you listen to it. I absolutely agree, especially when it comes to creating those relationships. People will approach me for advice about contacting manufacturers and I think people just want to send out a bunch of RFQs, requests for quote, without creating that relationship. Instead of getting a good price or a manufacturer that will work with you, you're just getting someone that's just replying back to an email that taking the human portion out of the process. And there's a lot of benefit in being able to negotiate with people and, and having some of your questions answered that you didn't even know that you needed to ask. Can you talk a little bit about your way of striking some of these relationships? Absolutely. No, no, absolutely. I, I hear what you say. It's the human element, the contact, the understanding what your manufacturer needs to do, what he's got to go through to create that component for you. It's really important that you understand that journey rather than just send a CAD file and expect a quote back and maybe, you know, put your order in for the first 200. I, I personally feel that you really want to understand what he has to do to make that product because that way you're going to learn more next time you go back to him. And certainly over the years, I'm, I'm not a potter, I'm not a ceramicist. So, but over the years, the, the information that I've gleaned from these guys who, I, it sounds a little rude, but are in the sort of twilight of their careers, you know, they're, right. they're kind of, they need to be listened to because they really, really know what they're talking about. And they've got so much to give if, you, if you're prepared to listen. So when you're kind of striking up those first relationships, be it your retailers or your suppliers, we're absolutely, our foundation is based on the relationships that we have with those people. We hold that absolutely dear. It's fundamental to what we're about at Green and Blue. Well, and I'd also like to touch on one other thing that you mentioned. You said that you made all these different visits. You had someone that was doing the casting and someone that was doing the glazing for you. When people talk to me about going to a manufacturer, they expect to go to somewhere that is a one-stop shop that will basically, they just pick up their product in a box and everything is completed. Now, a lot of the manufacturing that I'm used to, it's very piecemeal. So the companies that I've worked for, for example, they're very much like green and blue. They prefer to do their assembly in-house, but they source the individual components of their products from different manufacturers. And they might even have uh, someone that's adding value, that's adding a coating, such as your glazer. And a product really flows through this chain before it gets to the end goal. And, and in a way, I think a lot of the reason that people do hold on to that chain themselves is because it keeps a better eye on quality and they're able to have more control over the process. What's the reason that you've kept it that way instead of just going to a, like a one-stop shop? I think fundamentally for what we do, there probably isn't a one-stop stop. We're, we're drawing together components and materials that might not necessarily have been put together before or certainly not for this particular use. So for that reason, it's important that we kind of understand the relationship between each of the materials and how they're going to fit. And I think you can't really expect sort of one company to take that on for you and, and outsource and bring all the bits into you. Plus, it's about quality. Our products are about the very best materials that we can source and put together to create a product 
that is going to last your lifetime. That's that's fundamental to green and blue. It's about creating really good products that are going to last and last. So that that last touch, that last little bit of detail, that exactly where the leaflet goes, putting the box in in the outer cart and knowing that's perfect every single time is is really key. You know, we're a pretty small company, so our reputation is absolutely the most important thing to us. We want every customer to be delighted with what they open. And, and certainly for us, the only way we can absolutely ensure that is if we've done it. So yeah, that, that, that's that's absolutely key to what we do. One of the guests that we've had on the show described it to her employees as, what if your mother or your cousin was opening this or your brother was opening this package for the first time? How would you pack it? How would you assemble it? Absolutely. You know, we're less than a, a month away from Christmas. We're kind of packing products like it's going out of fashion in the workshop at the moment. It really is a very busy time for us. But the care goes into every single one. And you have this kind of very slightly strange feeling on Christmas morning as as my children are opening their presents. I'm thinking, goodness me, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people are opening what we've made. Let's hope they're as delighted as, as my kids are with what they're opening at the moment. So if you kind of, you know, reverse it back on yourself and look at it, anything you make, you know, you want to be proud of it and kind of think, yeah, that's the best we can do. Yeah, that's really great advice. You mentioned about reaching out to retailers and it sounds like you went about it in a very manual way, looking uh, people up in the yellow pages and things like that. Was there anything that really worked for you to help get that traction other than just straight knocking on doors and creating a really compelling pitch? It's tough. I think certainly from the outset, it, it was yellow pages. It was finding a kind of the sort of retailer that you felt might be in that town or, or what have you, or searching design books or home lifestyle books, that kind of thing, just to sort of see, well, there's a great retailer. Let's get it in front of them. That was tough. That was hard legwork. That was a spreadsheet that just went on forever of contacts and who you spoke to, what they thought of it, have they received the sample. Just a huge amount of, of manual time on, on our part, on, on my part, certainly to begin with. What we've kind of moved to now is, is we, we have two trade shows that we, we go up to London with our, with our products. It's, it's very specifically tailored to the kind of market that we're at, which is, is, is really high-quality products for the home and for the garden. And that, that really suits us because we get to see and nurture the relationships that we have with a lot of our retailers and we get to meet new retailers and we have an awful lot of buyers that come in from, from Europe. So we we wouldn't have that outreach. We, there's no way we could get to the right person every time in every company that we, 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 we contact. So having the most relevant trade show is, is key, but you, you've got to go absolutely prepared. You need to have your, your products got to be just so. Obviously, your prices have got to be right. Your, you know, your shipping costs, your your delivery times. So you've really got to kind of have gone through the process before you go there, because these people are going to expect that. They don't have a lot of time. They've got a big haul to go around. They just want to know the key things, and they'll go away and think about it. And with luck, they'll they'll come back and place an order. So certainly, that's that's still what we do today. Is is a, a couple of shows a year. Um, as well as legwork, the continual legwork of nurturing the relationships with retailers. But it, it is tough. It's uh, the, the best thing, if I'm honest, is the reorder. When you've got a great retailer, you're really excited about it, and you send your first um, order to them, and you're kind of desperately waiting for, for them to come back. In fact, we, we just had a wonderful retailer come back to us this evening 
and they're over the moon with what we've done. We're really excited to work with them. And they've come back. And for me, that's testament. They've sold the goods. The customer likes it. They've come back for more. So that's, that's, that's certainly for me, that's what you look for. That must be an amazing feeling, especially since uh, now you feel that you've started that relationship, you've you forged it, and so it's yours to lose at this point. Absolutely, that's 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 key, and and that's about product quality and customer service. I can't stress that enough. It's keep that relationship fresh and keep telling them everything that you're doing, all the new things you're involved with. Get feedback from them. Ask them lots of questions about you know what do you think we could do to help you sell this you know it, it doesn't just stop when they send their check to you you know it's important that you kind of put the time in with these guys because they, they've got the shop floor they've got the space they've got the ability to reach far more people than we can ever reach you know so and, and more importantly I, I think our web sales are really key and it's fundamentally where we'd like to grow the business but we have wonderful products that are handmade they have they're so stunning when you see them in the flesh that a retailer can do that so much better than we can ever do that so it's about showcasing your product yeah and one of the things that i like that you said was that it seemed like the trade shows weren't going to be effective for somebody unless they've gone through the process and so the recommendation that i always make and you know feel free to correct me is that you need to be out there selling and have some retailers under your wing before you take on a trade show because trade shows will set you back a few thousand dollars for booth fees and all sorts of other expenses for travel and you need to be able to handle the volume that some of these buyers expect absolutely they're they're hugely expensive it's sort of you know occasionally we'll come back and think okay well that that wasn't great but it's in it's in the follow-up it's all in the follow-up it's taking as much information as you possibly can about a customer or a potential new lead and coming back and following that up, really ensuring that you're kind of drilling down into those contacts and and really following up just to make sure, you know, this fit is going to work. Because there's no point in sort of forcing something on someone if they're not, you know, if they're not going to love it. Because at the end of the day, they're going to spend their money on it and they, they're going to have it in their store. So you, you want it to work well for both of you. It's really important. But I hear what you say, Trey, shows that they're hugely expensive. It's... Uh, I'd recommend for anybody, if at all possible, some aren't just trade, some have sort of public days. If you're kind of contemplating a trade show, certainly get along, go and have a look around, see what's there, see the way things are done. Talk to as many people as you possibly can that are in the situation that you're likely to get yourself into before you commit to the the, the sort of uh, the costs of it. Um, I think that's quite an important thing to do. No, absolutely. I think going as a guest is amazing, especially since, like you said, you can usually come in for a free day and can meet a lot of suppliers and vendors and get those contacts that you wouldn't normally. I've even been sold to at a trade show, even though this isn't legal, and a lot of trade shows prohibit this, but guests would come in and the guy literally opened his trench coat <laughs> and I like showed me some samples of their product. So, and I'm not advocating this, but I'm definitely saying that it's uh, possible for you to make some really good contacts, like you said. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Before we moved on, because I definitely want to talk about some of your other products, I want to kind of wrap up this talk with the bird ball. So you've slowly moved into working with some of the retailers and selling online. At what point did you decide, you know what, we need to have another product in this line because it's not sustainable for us just to sell one item? I think the initially getting a product from the sort of the, the drawing board into a manufacturer 
into a retailer, into a customer's home, and, and those customers keep coming back, it is a wonderful process. It really is. It's really, really exciting to sort of know that your products are in people's gardens doing exactly what you've designed it for. It is a great process. It's quite addictive. It kind of means you want to do it again and again and again. Feedback from our, our retailers were, gosh, you know, this, this is a wonderful product. We're really excited. We've never seen anything like this. It's selling really well. What else are you doing? So these guys kind of drive it. They they want the next thing. They want to know what you're doing next. They want to see is it a, a totally new thing or, or a lot make recommendations about what they feel would be a great next product. So it's advice being, you know, listen to what people have to say because these guys are far more experienced than certainly I was at the time. They're dealing with the customers directly. So it, it, it was, you know, key to listen. With the, the feeders, again, I think we kind of concluded that, well, you know, if we're doing this with providing habitat for birds, we, we should be looking at the problems with feeding birds. That's our next interaction with them. And again, we found the same problems that fundamentally were possibly damaging to birds' beaks and claws, which was just disastrous. They didn't keep the food source dry. Very basic things when you kind of think about them. So what we then did was go back to the drawing board to think, okay, well, how can we resolve these issues? Are these something that we can do from where we're at? We've got this manufacturing process. We know this works well. We've got a, a database of customers who we're pretty sure would like to hear from us, you know, get some drawings down, get some prototypes made and, and get them in front of some key retailers. Talk to people about this before you commit, you know, and press the big button in terms of spending lots of money. They're your best sort of advocates, really. They're, they're going to provide you that that really key information. Um, so I'd certainly recommend doing that before you commit to a huge production run is, is with any new product, get it out and about, talk to end users, talk to your retailers. And certainly from our perspective, obviously we create products for wildlife. So it's imperative that we have either gone through an entire life cycle or gone through a number of seasons with our feeders and that sort of thing to ensure that the birds interact with the product well, that they're comfortable using them. Um, sort of without that feedback, Mother Nature's feedback, so to speak, it, we, we, we're dead in the water. So, yeah, you've got to, yeah, you've certainly got to put the time in. As I say, don't push the big button until you're absolutely sure you've got something that, that people are going to want. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit. You know, our clients that I've worked for and to sell services to have basically all asked similar questions. What's the field history for this type of technology? Where has it been used in that similar application before? Prove to me that what we're buying is, and these are you know much more expensive products or high tech products, but the question is basically the same. Uh, leave my risk and leave my concerns somehow. And so when you went in there to sell did you have a prototype at that point or had did you you said you undergone maybe a year or more of testing how did you do that without having to pay that upfront cost for the castings yeah it, it's tricky because obviously as soon as you you tool up in 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 ceramic you you create a master to take the mold from and then once you have that master mold you create working mold so you have to commit all your money up front which is is a little bit terrifying what i've tended to do is i've it's been a very hands-on designer. So, so getting from a drawing stage to a, a working prototype involves a number of stages. And if I'm honest, this goes back to my time at Dyson, where we'd create a cardboard model, the cheapest, quickest solution, sit yep. on the kitchen table with a couple of sheets of cardboard and 
put something together, check the fit, make sure things are going to work. And then we create what we call a breadboard model, which again is something that we would create at Dyson. So you can see how when you kind of get a little bit of wood and a bit of plastic and, and a piece of rubber and it's all going to hang on a, on a piece of stainless steel wire, how does that fit? How does it hang? Does it sit right? That sort of thing. So you can make an awful lot of decisions very quickly, very cheaply, before you've actually had to commit a huge amount of money to create something that was aesthetically how we expected the finished product to look and, and, and work is, it is tricky. You, you kind of, depending on your skill set and depending on, on your resources, dictates as to what level that prototype is worked up to. But certainly we would produce a, a fiberglass product that first off, we, we weren't putting out for the birds at this stage, but we were getting the fit right. We were getting the, the size. We were hanging it up. We were kind of talking to retailers about it. We were able to show them a physical product, you know, sending them photographs and drawings and sort of saying, this is what we're going to do. It's going to be great. It keeps the food source dry. It protects the birds' beaks and, and claws from the damage that can be caused by, by wire mesh feeders. Um, even our perches are flexible. So they're designed for feeding just the small birds, not the huge carrion crows that don't really need the help in the garden. This is about feeding very specific sort of types of garden bird that, that really need the help. Mm -hmm. So all of that can be done relatively simply and relatively cheaply with a working prototype. Um, certainly the products that we develop, they're relatively simple in terms of the number of components and what they're made from. There's not a huge amount of technology. Obviously, if someone is coming at something for, with a, a, a very much a technology-based product, it, it, they're going to have different challenges. But certainly my advice would be keep it really simple to start with. Get feedback at every stage. So you, you're not committing to either production runs or huge uh, prototyping costs without being sure you've got something that's going to work. Yeah, I absolutely love the advice with prototyping as cheaply as possible. I think people jump to 3D printing or whatever the latest craze is without really understanding that it, there's a lot of time that goes into creating those 3D models and creating the prints. And like you said, there can be a lot of benefit into just creating some of these quick models using whatever tools that you have available, whatever materials that you're used to working with. Absolutely. We, we can cover a lot of ground very quickly. I, I think that the an example of, of one of our feeders, the bell feeder, I think was prototyped on the afternoon that it was thought of in the morning. So literally by the following week, we got a fiberglass cast shell that we knew was going to work. We'd already talked to retailers. That, that's the quickest thing I think I've ever designed. And by moving quickly in terms of using very cheap resources that you can throw together really, really kind of certainly very quickly, you, you've got something, you've got a finished product. So yeah, don't don't spend money where you don't need to because you're certainly going to have to spend it elsewhere. Yeah, save your money for when you need to ramp up production because that will sure. definitely uh, open your eyes. One of the products that I definitely wanted to talk about were the V Hotels. If I could describe it really simply, it's the size of a brick, but it has different sized holes inside for bees to nest in. Can you kind of elaborate on that? That's right. I'll begin with sort of saying that the, the bee brick is designed for solitary bees. Now, we have honeybees, hiving honeybees that provide us with wonderful honey. We have bumblebees, the big black and yellow fluffy ones that buzz around and look far too big to fly. What we then have are a huge number of what we call solitary bees. In, in the UK, we have over 250 different species of solitary bee. I, I think it's even more in the US. A solitary bee is a as the name suggests, is a, is a female bee that lives a solitary life. 
she doesn't spend her time in a hive. She doesn't create honey. But what she does do is she's a, a key pollinator. Solitary bees, or I think a red mason solitary bee specifically, can do the work of 120 honeybee workers, which I think is an absolutely staggering fact. Mm. So essentially the way she does that, she's a fantastic pollinator. What she's doing, she's finding a suitable cavity, certainly in a bee brick, but in, in an old wall or in a grass verge or a grass bank or something like that where she's historically made a nest. She will go to the back of a long, thin tunnel. She'll lay an egg. She'll then go out and collect nectar and pollen for that egg, which is remarkable when you kind of consider it. Now, it's as she goes out and collects the nectar and pollen, this is where she's splashing from one flower to the next to the next. This is where she's a fantastic pollinator. She's not a great collector of nectar and pollen in the way that a bumblebee or a honeybee is. They have baskets on their sides, on their flanks, where they kind of collect all the nectar and pollen and very neatly take it backwards and forwards to the hive. She's not so good as that, but that actually makes her a better pollinator, the way she splashes into one flower and then onto the next. She's collecting a small amount of nectar and pollen, provisioning each of her eggs with that. She's then making uh, a mud wall, certainly in the case of a red mason bee, between each egg and each provision of, uh, of nectar and pollen. It's quite a remarkable process. She's making little bedrooms for these guys all the way down this tunnel. She'll then finish that process by putting a little mud cap on the front and those um, eggs will hatch out this side of, of Christmas and they'll be with us as fully fledged bees sort of end of March, April next year, certainly where we are in the UK, where it, when the sun warms up They've got the energy to, to hatch out and away they go to repeat the process. It really is a magical, magical process. Solitary bees, are, they're critical to our survival, put simply. Um, they're a wonderful pollinator. And quite simply, without our bees, we really would be in, in, in quite a, a sorry state. We understand there's a region in China where rapid industrialization and, and poor farming practices have actually led to an area where pollination is of, of fruit trees is, is carried out by men and women with huge long paintbrushes on sticks, hand pollinating one flower to the next to the next. If we, we lose our bees, we, we really are in a, in a disastrous state. The, the bee brick, it, the, the idea there, again, we looked at what was available in terms of solitary bee nesting spaces commercially. Um, we felt that we could improve on a number of things uh, from the material. We, we've, we know that the life cycle is, is a, almost a full 12 months. So it needed to be made from a material that could withstand the worst of the weather. So that was that was absolutely key. We then sort of looked at the, the cavities, the sizes, the depths, the, the different sizes that different bees might might look for, and thought, well, it's important that we provide a number of different sizes for, for each of the different females that, that will will use it. Solitary bees are quite happy to nest alongside one another. They're not creating hives, they're not creating honey. They're, they're entirely harmless. They're, they're a wonderful species to, to encourage. They're safe to encourage around children. The bee brick was a very exciting thing. We touched on concrete. We thought, well, concrete's a fantastic material because it's great year round. We can we can make it into all sorts of different shapes. Our experience with ceramic had taught us about molds and, and making masters and, and batch production, that sort of thing. So it was tangible on our scale as a small business that oh, we could do this. This really could work. 
However, what we recognised was that the the challenges that we have in terms of pollinating enough crop to provide the food that we need is vast. It's absolutely enormous. It really is. Yet we're doing a huge amount of damage to our pollinating bee species in how we farm and how we industrialise areas, how we build homes, how we desecrate greenfield sites to put up housing developments. Obviously, we, we need to provide houses for, for, for ourselves. And, and in doing so, we, we, we sort of do away with homes for nature. This kind of was a light bulb moment, which these don't happen very often, but when they do, it's very exciting. We, we thought, okay, so we can cast this out of concrete. Why don't we make it brick-shaped? So if it's made brick-shaped, there's no reason why this brick can't be picked up just as easily as a standard house brick. That way we can piggyback on the back of a much larger industry. That way, you know, there's potential for a bee brick to go into every new house, every new garden wall, every new garage wall, gable end, you name it. There's absolutely no reason why this can't be included everywhere. That way we stand a chance of redressing the damage that we've done to bees by simply putting a brick in a wall. It, it, it was a lovely moment. Thanks for sharing that. I feel like we were just uh, listening to the Discovery Channel live here. So I appreciate, <laughs> appreciate the, uh, the, the background on that. First of all, congratulations on creating a product that has such a huge social impact and environmental impact and being able to create a business out of it. I think that's just a, a feat by itself. I think that's something that we all strive to do, or I definitely do. It's very exciting. We feel like we're poised to do something really great with this product. At the end of the day, our client is is the bee. It's, it's about providing habitat for them, the best possible habitat in the in the volume that's large enough to create a real difference. This is the key. This is the, the fundamental thing to, to what we're trying to do with the bee brick. One thing that stuck in my head, I guess the practical engineer in me, I thought that the adoption of this would be the, the biggest problem for you as a business, you know, trying to get construction companies to pick it up. How have you been able to to counteract some of that resistance? That's an interesting question, actually. The resistance, we really haven't felt, if I'm honest. We've done what we do. We've done our due diligence in terms of mm-hmm. creating a, a great product, creating prototypes, talking to uh, structural engineers and architects, understanding what would be required of the product in terms of implementing it into buildings on a large scale. Mm-hmm. And what we've recognized is that, that certainly architects and specifiers and green ecologists I'm almost crying out for products that will do this. It's about putting nature back into our buildings, back into our spaces around the homes that we build. So Beaver has has the ability to do that. So certainly in terms of architects specifying the products, that, that's not the challenge. The, the challenge is, is perhaps with the construction industry as a whole. How do we ask them nicely to implement it into each product, into each project that they're doing? We We have a number of... Um, construction companies that we already work with, which is wonderful. So we understand, we're beginning to understand the construction industry. There's a huge learning curve for a small company like us to understand how a product gets put into a building is a a huge process. But but fundamentally, it, it, it is doable. People do want it. Clients want it. Architects want to use it. It does great things for nature. We feel there is a disconnect in terms of an understanding of 
one, what a solitary bee is, and two, why I should encourage it around my home and around my children. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the big challenge for us. We feel it's it's an education of this is this is a bee. This is why they're important. You know, we kind of see a, 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 a state where every new home would, let's say, have a bee brick. What what we've had to recognise is, you know, we, we've been making the bee bricks in in our workshop, which is is hugely challenging. It's it's casting twice a day. It's it's dealing with moulds. It's dealing with concrete. It's dealing with all of those materials that go into making the product, and and that's a challenge. What we've recognised is that if we want to see the the real change. The, the real big idea, which is getting as many bee bricks into as many new homes as possible, it's probably not something that we can do alone. And and that's that's an interesting place for us as a company to find ourselves. It, we've been able to do this with, with ceramics and so on, but th- this is a bigger challenge. This isn't about us. This is about providing really good habitat for bees. So what we've very recently done is it's it started to have conversations with very large concrete casting companies that that have all of the contacts into the construction industry they're able to cast the product on the scale that is required to see the change that we would like to see that's really exciting because suddenly we can go out and really talk about our product really passionately and have construction people understand why it's important that these products go in. This is for a lifetime. This is providing legacy for your wonderful developments. Put these in. You know, it, it, it's really genuinely going to help this sort of biodiversity of of the entire of the, the entire development that you've you've, you've done. It's uh, it's very exciting to suddenly find ourselves in a place where we're not going to be making every bee brick, but it means that we can really go out and talk to far more people about what we're doing. Yeah, so talk about that process a little bit, about IP protection and what have you done with your products, if anything, to uh, keep competitors from coming in and just stealing your designs? It's absolutely something that you have to take very seriously. It's very difficult sometimes because there's quite often considerable costs in terms of protecting your your product. At Green and Blue, we we probably, from my background at Dyson, we ensure that every product that we develop is registered with the patent office. That's key. And certainly then when you go out and start talking to manufacturers, the bare minimum you want to sort of do is ensure that there's agreement between yourselves that, that what we're going to discuss today is just strictly to be kept between us. The the content of what we're going to talk about is private. This is a development meeting to talk about how we go forward. A very good NDA is, is very important as a, as a starting point. I think you need to kind of gauge the sort of companies that you're talking to. Again, this is where we go back to what we're good at. We'll go along, we'll meet with them, we'll talk to them, we'll walk around factories, we'll understand their business. So, so we're not making ridiculous kind of expectations about, oh, you know, can you do that? How many can you do? How quickly can we have them? By going along and meeting these guys, you can do that there and then. You can have these wonderful conversations that will give you all the answers that you're going to need. Well, along those same lines, if you had a, to give somebody a tip, they're struggling to bring their own product to market or maybe they already have a product to market and they're just looking to scale do you have any advice that you would just give them that's blanket advice kind of to say hey this is how to get to the next step that's tricky obviously it depends on on the product that someone's developed but i think getting anything to the next stage has got to be done uh, certainly we, 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 we take relatively cautious steps I, I think it's it's understanding your market talking to your retailers understanding how many retailers like that are out there? 
recognizing, well, you know, yes, it's big enough for that next step, that next scale, let's go for it. Or understanding, well, actually the market for this product isn't enormous. So let's just work with what we know and with the, the number of retailers that are out there and deliver a really top quality product. It really is difficult to sort of give any unilateral advice because it, it's so specific to, to, to whatever's been designed. The whole process is very iterative. It's almost a guess and check. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, certainly. Gavin, thanks again for coming on the show. Where can people go and buy their own bird feeders and their bee bricks if they want to incorporate them in their own project? We'd love you to come and visit our site. Come to Green and Blue. So it's green and A-N-D, greenandblue.co.uk. Come and see what we do. Understand a bit more about what it is we're trying to achieve. And, and if we can help you with a few products, we'd absolutely love to. Great. Well, thanks again, Gavin. I really appreciate you being on the show and being so transparent and sharing a little bit about why it's important to have a social impact and environmental impact in our business and really appreciated learning about bees and you know what we can do to kind of change what we've done to the environment or to kind of hopefully reverse the process so we don't run into pollination issues that you mentioned. It's exciting. I've enjoyed every minute of talking to you, Philip. And if ever you'd like to talk again, we'd be happy to do so. Also, if you go to greenandblue.co.uk and use the code STARTUP, it will apply a 15% discount on the entire product range. It's valid for all of 2017 if you're listening to this as an old episode. Here are three of my takeaways that we can apply to our business. Number one, tell good stories. The typical pitch starts with describing the problem and then showing how your solution is better than the rest. Taking care to be clear about the before and the after, showing how life is before the solution and showing how it's much improved after. Perhaps it's just me, but Gavin really pulled me into his bird and bee world. I was familiar with the pollination problems that we're seeing across the world due to vanishing bee populations, but his detailed descriptions of the different bees fired off a lot of mental images for me. When he addressed the negative side to land development, I actually imagined the bees and birds leaving the area. So when he talked about the solution... I pictured his product as the way forward. I think the key about what Gavin does so well here is tell stories that pulls the listener in. One of the goals of marketing is to get the audience to feel something, to make that strong emotional connection. We didn't talk about it on the show, but I bet Gavin's approach to telling good stories is one of the keys to the growth of Green and Blue. I definitely know that I need to do a better job of doing this myself. Number two, take things apart. Early in the show, Gavin talks about taking things apart to learn how they work and applying the design concepts to his own product. I work the same way. I've been taking things apart since I was a kid, and I think that's the fastest way to learn about products around us. I love going to the dollar store, for example, and buying products that I can take apart and use for components in my own prototypes. Plus, I reuse off-the-shelf parts as much as I can in my designs, so using existing products helps to lower costs considerably because I know those parts are out there in the wild and they're manufacturable. So most of my upfront fees go to aspects of the product that are unique. Lastly, piggyback an established industry. One key to influencing massive change is scaling really quickly. Gavin recognized this and he sought out the usual players in the construction industry to get buy-in. By using the same manufacturers for the B-brick, he reduces the barrier to adoption. Architects and builders are already familiar with the same materials and suppliers. This also takes advantage of economies of scale. No doubt reducing the unit cost of each brick and making it more accessible to everybody. So by not trying to go at it all alone, Green and Blue has the ability now to enact much faster change. If you've got any questions or comments, I've put all the links that we've covered under the show notes posted on theproductstartup.com slash 36. Join me next time as I speak with Ruth Stone of Boxhead Craft. 
Boxhead Craft is the world's only manufacturer of blank box heads for kids to design and decorate. So this episode really gets meta. We will look at what it takes to launch a product that gets kids making things in real life under the whole Minecraft theme, which is basically a video game about building virtual things. So tune in next week to hear that episode. I'm going to try something new. I've set up a number for you to call and leave me questions or feedback on the show. If I choose your question, I'll air it on a future episode. Listener David M. had a great idea. Since I don't have any advertising on the show, why not allow listeners who are just starting their own businesses to pitch the product startup audience? So call in with your question, feedback, or pitch to 681-321-1115. Please keep your pitch to 30 seconds or about the time that you'd have to pitch someone in an elevator. Don't forget to include the problem you're solving and the call to action, what you need us, the listeners, to do. Lastly, thank you again if you've subscribed to the show by hitting the subscribe button in iTunes or in your favorite podcasting app. If you haven't done that already, it's the best way to be notified of new releases within hours of any episode going live. Thanks again for joining me, and I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Mako Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Mako Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.